Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Because we are His children, we face discipline from Him. We face, yes, the judgment of Almighty God, but not the wrath of God, not the way of eternal condemnation, but by way of that punishment and the consequence that comes with disobedience. If my son willfully disobeys me, he's going to face the consequences. And there's going to be a lot of privileges taken away. Well, at 45, that's not going to work anymore. But uh, when he was little, a lot of privileges would be taken away. And he would face the consequence of that disobedience. It's important that you understand the difference between God's discipline and God's wrath. Pastor David teaches you today that as a child of God, you can expect him to discipline you. If you go against his will, there will likely be repercussions. Just as parents discipline their children to help them grow, God must discipline you so that you might fulfill the hopes that he has for your life. God's wrath, however, you do not have to fear. As his child, you are freed and protected from it. Now here's Pastor David in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 as he continues his message, The All-Sufficient Sacrifice. says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no other greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, after Abraham patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. And then in verse 17 is where I want you to get. Because God made a promise. God made a commitment to man. And that commitment and that promise of God. For thus God, verse 17, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable, two unchangeable things in which... It is impossible for God to lie that we might have strong consolation, we who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that's set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Two unchangeable truths. Number one is God's word. He does not lie. Had not God spoken it, will he not do it? And God's oath. He does not change. If he's sworn an oath years ago, he knows tomorrow and he knows years from now. Why would he swear an oath years ago that he could not keep today? He does not change. In chapter 7, speaks about Melchizedek. 
the king of righteousness, how he was a type of Christ. Verse three of chapter seven says that he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God and he remains a priest continually. And in the same way, Christ, look down at verse 24, but he, speaking of Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save, sort of, what does it say, gang? To the uttermost. Save to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize that right now, tonight, Jesus Christ is making intercession. He's right there with the Father. He's making intercession for you. He's praying for you. He knows the stuff you're going through. He knows the battles you're going through, and he's praying for you. That, if nothing else, man, that ought to be an encouragement to every one of us. Verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all, there it is again, when he offered up himself. Chapter 8 continues on to drive home the, the depth of what's being shared in, here, here in all of this section. Look at verse 8. And I love what he says here. Now this is the main point. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to say. He brings it home right here. Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. He's not talking about the earthly tabernacle. He's talking about the heavenly one. Verse six, but now he, speaking of Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Look down in verse 10. And this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saying, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 12. For I will, what? Be merciful if they are faithful. It's not what it says, is it? I will be merciful in their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says it is a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. What was the first? The keeping of the commands and the laws. Now he says the first is obsolete. Why is it obsolete? Because Christ kept it all. He fulfilled it all. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, as he gets into chapter 9, he continues to talk about the limitations of this earthly temple and all the sacrifices. And remember, all of that was going on at the time this book was written. In chapter 9, let's skip down to verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Verse 11, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, 
with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living Lord? He's saying, man, don't don't allow those works to be the, the, the focus of what you believe is going to be that that maintains and holds your salvation. Now, we are called to good works. We are commanded to good works. But beloved, that's because we are believers, not in order to obtain salvation. Again, that's the power of our mediator. He does not have to be crucified over and over and over again. Again, putting him to open shame, as chapter 6 tells us. Chapter 9 continues on, speaks really clearly about the completeness of his sacrifice. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, remember chapter 1, verse 1, at these last days is now spoken to us through his son. That's what he's speaking about. The end of the ages. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now, let me keep going because we're running out of time. Chapter 10, and again, this goes deeper into the same truth. Animal sacrifices, again, they're never gonna be sufficient. They and the law, again, as verses 1 and verse 4 there, chapter 10 say, they're, they're a shadow of good things to come. They're not the very image of the things, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Now, going down to verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, a good Jew would understand what you're saying. It's the holy of holies. It's a place that no Jew would ever go. Only the high priest once a year and his life better already have all the sacrifices done for him. But now through Christ, he says, we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood, not of a bull, but of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Beloved, then there is a very powerful and a much contested passage that's found in these next section of verses, verses 26 through 31. So hang in here with me. We're going to blow through them, and then I'm going to speak about them. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. 
anyone who, uh, verse uh, 28, yeah, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Guys, there's absolutely no doubt that what we have here is a dire warning for anyone who would walk away from their obedience and commitment to Christ, and simply to continue to, to sin willfully. I mean, the, the warning is, is so clear. There's going to be substantial consequences for that one who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified as a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. There's no doubt about the warnings that the writer is giving. If this were the only passage given to us in regards to this whole issue that's brought up here, you'd have reason to believe that eternal condemnation is the final end of it all, and that's what's going to be found for those that are in that situation. But the problem is, with that answer, you bring up more problems than it solves. If in our failure there, In our falling back, we who are saved lose our salvation and we enter into eternal condemnation. We've got a major problem then. If while living, an individual can lose their salvation, what sin brings about that condemnation? How much disobedience takes away my salvation? To what extreme Do I have to go to where God says, that's it and no more? How long must I be disobedient and running from God? If they can lose their salvation, can they ever gain it back again? It doesn't appear that way from what Hebrews says. There's one sacrifice. Do I come back to that sacrifice? Is he crucified again? If I I lose it, I can't get it back. Is it being in sin when I die? Is, Is that the catcher? Again, I have to ask, what sin brings it all about? If it's through disobedience that we can lose our salvation, what do we say about the testimony of the multiples of believers who for whatever reason, they walked away from the Lord at some point in their life and later came back to the Lord or not? For three and a half years, I walked away from the Lord. You looked at me and said, that guy's not a believer. Well, if you'd have died during that time, you'd have gone straight to hell. I don't believe so. There's a multitude of reasons why. We'll, we'll look at that in a moment. I got a real question for you to ponder. Is, is Saul in heaven or is he in hell? Just ponder that for a moment. If David would have died after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he murdered Uriah. Would he have spent an eternity in hell? 
Because see, suddenly, church, my salvation is based upon my works and not on the grace of God. I'm called into the kingdom of God by his plan and by his mercy. That's how I become his child. And once I come to a saving faith in Christ, I am called, I am commanded, yes, to walk in obedience. And if I do not walk in obedience, if I continue to willfully sin, the writer of Hebrews, I believe, is telling us here that we don't have much hope at that point. We are going to face the discipline of God in our lives, and we may have to live with that discipline for the rest of our lives. I'll give you a couple of examples from the Bible. Abraham willfully sinned against God as he impregnated Hagar, and he lived with the consequence of that sin all of his life. As a matter of fact, you and I still live with the consequence of that sin. Moses never got to go into the promised land. He put up with those people for 40 stinking years. And yet, because he was so disobedient to the word of God, God says, no, you misrepresented me before the people. God didn't take his salvation away. He didn't get to see the fulfillment of the promise. He never entered the promised land, but I don't believe that his salvation was gone. David's family, absolutely, it was, it was an absolute mess. Even one of his sons tried to take his, or one of his sons tried to take his life, tried to definitely tried to take his kingdom from him. You see, when we're disobedient to the Lord, because we are his children, we face discipline from him. We face, yes, the judgment of Almighty God, but not the wrath of God, not the way of eternal condemnation, but by way of that punishment and the consequence that comes with disobedience. If my son willfully disobeys me, he's going to face the consequences. And there's going to be a lot of privileges taken away. Well, at 45, that's not going to work anymore. But uh, when he was little, a lot of privileges would be taken away and he would face the consequence of that disobedience. But guess what, guys? He's still my son. He's still my son. You have to consider, you have to consider these individuals, even from the Old Testament and a host of others in reference to what this passage is telling us here in, in, in chapter six and in chapter 10. We have to consider these like Abraham who failed, Moses who failed, David who failed, because you know what? The writer of Hebrews considers them. When we get into chapter 11, and as he wrote those words, he understood, yes, the importance of faith and that without faith we cannot please God. That's what he tells us in chapter 11, verse 6. That's why he continued to encourage the believers, you need to be walking in faith. And that's why in chat, and we we'll, won't go through all of 11 again, it's the roll call of the faithful. But when we get over to chapter 12, he encourages believers, look what he says there in verse one. He says, therefore, we also, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witness. We need to lay aside every weight. We need to lay aside all those sins that so easily ensnare us. And we need to run with endurance the race that's set before us. We need to look unto Jesus. He's the author. And you know what? He's the finisher too of our faith. 
who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You've not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. Beloved, we're called to run this race, absolutely. We're called to run it with patient endurance. And if we sin in the midst of that race, yeah, we're gonna be chastened. But we are chastened because we are sons and daughters. Look what he says, verse chapter 12, down in verse five, as we're kind of wrapping it up real quick. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you uh, as, as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, oh, this is the hard part, of which all have become partakers, if you're, if you're without chastening, then you are illegitimate and you're not a son. That means you're not even saved. You see, beloved, it is context, context, context. You have to have the context if you're going to interpret Scripture correctly. We cannot pull a verse from here and pull a verse from here. The Scriptures will explain themselves if we allow them to. The writer ends the epistle here in chapter 13 with a few continuing instructions and encouragements. And I want to end tonight with those words down in verse 14. Hebrews 13, verse 14. He tells them here, we don't have any continuing city, but we're seeking one that's to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And then finally, look down at verse 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Now, that's funny. He's written, I mean, I've only written a few words here. So in other words, he could have expounded on a whole lot of this. It's been a short study, even through Hebrews, 13 chapters in about an hour's time. But beloved, uh, just as the writer says, we need to stand firm in the knowledge that it is the power and the perfect sacrifice of Christ. It's the sacrifice that was given once for all. Um, that's what paid for our sin, the past, the present, the future. It is Christ who holds us. We are in his hand. He is in the Father's hand. If you count this a small thing, if you count your salvation and the sacrifice of Christ a small thing, then you do risk that severe disciplining of God. And as the writer reminds us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Open our 
As our time with you today winds down, we'd like to share where you can listen to today's message again. You'll find this and other teachings from Pastor David and The Open Word at theopenword.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to ensure you never miss an edition of the program. Right now, let's turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick message from the heart. Hello, friend. I'm so glad you joined in today to The Open Word. As you know, this broadcast is meant to share with you the hope, grace, and love that can only be found through Jesus Christ. He's the reason I teach every week at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. I want as many people as possible to know and believe the message of the gospel. If you'd like to know more about what Jesus' life and death means to you, I'd encourage you to call us. We have some great people here who would love to pray with you and answer your questions. Our number is 520-836-9676. Again, that's 520-836-9676. Know that I'm praying for you too, and I value you greatly as a listener and brother or sister in Christ. Thanks, Pastor David. We'd like to invite you to come see us in person as well at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. We have services every Saturday, Sunday, and Wednesday, and you'll be able to find more information at theopenword.com. Just click the church link at the bottom of the page. With that, our time with you has come to an end. Join us next time to continue our journey through the Bible, right here on The Open Word. Make us more.